Welcome to Life, Death, and the Space Between podcast. I'm Dr. Amy Robbins, and I'm a clinical psychologist and medium. And we're going to explore life, death, consciousness, and what it all means. Today, I have Leslie Lupo back on the show. Leslie is is an intuitive practitioner at the famed Canyon Ranch and is internationally known for her accuracy. She's a gifted healer, a neuro-linguistics programming specialist, and a near-death experiencer. She has a unique and rare gift for explaining the science behind intuition and spiritual phenomenon. After being killed by a stampede of horses, her profound near-death experience resulted in her groundbreaking new book entitled Remember, Every Breath is Precious, Dying Taught Me How to Live. And today I have Leslie on the show talking about kids and spirituality, which is part of a segment I'm doing right now with a few different speakers. So welcome, Leslie. Hello. Nice to be back. Thank you. So we're going to dig in right here and talk about what is a bodhisattva. Okay. And indigo kids, Houdini kids, you you address this in your book, but can you break it down for us today? Okay, yes. To um, when I was in the middle of my experience upstairs, I was told I could stay up there, or I could return back to Earth. And me being me, with a hundred thousand questions. I said, show me what I do up here, because I wanted to make an informed decision. And if, uh, and if, let me just stop you real quick. If people haven't had a chance to hear your story, I have your story on an earlier podcast, so they can go back and listen to that. Okay. And, and so they understand some of the lingo behind, like, upstairs and... Okay. And, yes. Okay. When I was, I crossed over to another realm, to heaven, or what I call upstairs, and I was having to make a choice. So they, whenever I was being shown something, it was as if there were these energy waves next on the tabletop and they would form like a sphere and then I would be watching like a three-dimensional movie. So when I asked, what do we do up here? We are placing these very, very old souls to come down on a specific mission. And I watched myself take a little piece of light and find a place to plant it. And that was how, what my, my job was. And to start off, you'd have to understand what the Bodhisattva is. Now, in the theory of reincarnation, in the belief of reincarnation, you have um, a, the souls are, the divine is, you know, like birthing new souls and what happens is the soul comes down on earth. It has a very young souls are very um, self-centered anger problems. You know, they have a lot of rage. They have to work out aggression. Then as they keep coming down with each lifetime, they become older and wiser and smarter and happier until they have this release of, sense of um, separation from God. They have a spiritually transformative experience. They have what they call enlightenment, and then they no longer have to come down here. So in the, in the um, 
you know, general view of reincarnation, it's as if it's a, a schooling system. And when you finally graduate, you get to go up to nirvana. So there was a woman, Kuan Yin, and she had her spiritual enlightenment. And she became a, a very beloved teacher on earth until it was, then she began to get old and she was ready to die. And she heard a baby cry. And she made a pledge to everyone there that she would return again and again. Instead of going off into nirvana, she would return as a, an elder to be a very strong spiritual teacher. And so that's how the word bodhisattva originated. Um, mother's love. You know, mother can't handle hearing a baby cry. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, that's what they told me has been as long as Homo sapiens has been on the planet. That was the first level of our brain wiring that could conceptualize a very deep personal relationship with God. That's when our wiring got to a certain point. And so all these bodhisattvas would be coming down, you know, um, after, you know, a few 10,000, 20,000 years in that 200,000 year cycle, many of the elders started coming back to become leaders in their spirituality. So if, if a bodhisattva is born into a Native American family, they're put into the medicine path. If they're born into a Jewish family, then they become rabbis. It's, the difference is this, the bodhisattva is a very old soul born into a very spiritual family that notices the gift that this child has and um, then takes it to the proper teachers so that, that uh, those longings for God are cultivated. Mm. So you never really hear about bodhisattvas because they're, they're only here to be spiritual teachers and they're the ones that are very selfless and not grandiose, and not ego-driven. They're, they're divine, they're, they're, they're already enlightened, so that means they're not struggling with ego, and they become spiritual teachers. The famous one, the only one we really know, is the Dalai Lama. Mm -hmm. The 14th incarnation of um, one of the Dalai Lamas who had attained that spiritual enlightenment. Now, what Mina explained to me was my soul group places another type of bodhisattva. And Mina okay. is your is one of your spirit guides. Yes. From the other side for Mina, yes. Mina is thank you. Mm -hmm. uh, one of my spirit guides upstairs. And so um, she had mentioned that around the middle of the 1800s global consciousness had connected on a strong level. And so in the late 1800s, a new level of bodhisattva began to come down and with very different mission. So the bodhisattva who is born into a spiritually awakened family, the blindfolded bodhisattva does not know who they are. Mm. They're born into a much younger family that is not spiritually awakened. And so the child has to look within and find their own spiritual path. 
So you have those big, strong differences. The reason that the blindfolded bodhisattvas came in was to break the chain of generational hatred. Children, uh, if you see any baby playgroups, children don't care what color or gender or you know, potty trained or not. They just want to play with each other. They don't see those differences. Hatred is taught. Hatred is not inert. Uh, within us. Um, fear is within us, but that's the very different. Hatred mm -hmm. has to be fed. Fear mm -hmm. is in and out quickly. Uh, so these blindfolded bodhisattvas would be incarnating into families that were um, younger souls, angry you know, families, rage families, um, fear-based families, and they would look around and think, where did I land, you know? Am I a changeling? Um, you know, I don't relate to this. And they had to go, kind of go within and, and change and build their own life and their own spiritual world. The second thing that the blindfolded bodhisattvas came down to do was elevate forgiveness to a point where they truly forgive. They don't say, I forgive you and then hold a grudge and beat you with it for the next 10 years, Houdini kids, which I call them now, and I'll explain that in a second, are people that are really good at forgiving. Um, the reason I call them- but not, but not at the expense of themselves, right? Like I would imagine that there's a line that you forgive, but you don't sacrifice. No, they're, they're selfless to a fault. Oh, okay. So they realize not to be. Okay. You're, that's a very good question. They're not because, don't forget, I mean, when we think of people that like a soldier who will jump on a grenade to save the platoon or the teacher that put himself between the gunman and the students and save lives, that's a heroic move. And we all are touched by such heroism that they're selfless to the point of, um, endangering themselves for others. Houdini kids have that heroic level of giving to where they have to be taught when to jump in and help and when not to jump in. Because of the fact that they're so good with forgiveness, they forgive too many times. And if they're involved with someone who is a younger soul who may be um, you know, someone who's abusive or controlling or passive aggressive or they love their self-sabotaging, they love their suffering. If they get entangled with them, they keep trying to heal them and to fix them. Mm -hmm. And so part of the reason I said at the end of the, my book is remember to include yourself in your decisions. Mm -hmm. Because any kids are selfless to a fault. Now, when I was in college getting my degree, I have a degree in developmental psych, specialized in gerontology, but we were taught that toddlers are the most self-centered, selfish little things, and you have to teach them how to share. Well, when I was with my children and baby playgroups, I actually found the opposite. What I noticed was that these toddlers could think of you only or me only. So a child who is already selfless has to be taught to include themselves in their decisions 
because children would come with treats and the mothers would give the children the treats to pass out and some of the children passed out all the treats and didn't keep one for themselves and other children got the treats and ran in the corner and wouldn't share mm -hmm. so they were thinking of themselves only and the other ones were thinking of the other only so as we're growing in adults instead of thinking of one we need to think of two, which is we. What's best for both of us, you know? And we all know that's a, a lot more adult. But to be going back to these blindfolded bodhisattvas, um, they are going to have to learn not to be so selfless. It's the opposite of selfish is selfless. It's not selfless to a fault. Mm -hmm. And many of the Houdini kids grow up and they are selfless to a fault. So they're the ones that need to learn to just include themselves. Well, Houdini kids will never be a narcissist, selfish person, but just coming in, you know, into the middle ground instead of um, falling backwards. And they're not the martyr complex people because when someone's playing the martyr role, everyone is going to hear about it. A mm -hmm. Houdini kid doesn't tell anybody. They're not blasting their poor me, poor me for everyone to see. They're very good with um, trying to work things out on, them, on their own. But um, like I said, to, they're simply here to break the chain of prejudice and generational hatred and prejudice they bring they elevate a very high level of forgiveness on the planet because they truly do add to that collective unconscious and also self-forgiveness you know houdini kids don't beat themselves up for 20 years over a mistake they made you know they can cringe when they think about it for a second but it's if whenever we remember anything, we have the same emotional biology, you know, as if it happened, but it's, again, one of those quick things they go, oh, well, that was me then, this is me now. And um, that is the learned behavior, that that was that me then, this is me now, because you're I'm always thinking about this in terms of like the therapeutic element, which is conceptually, if someone comes to therapy and they talk about repeating relationships where they always feel taken advantage of, they always forgive the person, the person never recognizes that they forgive them, things like that. What I would want to work on is setting appropriate boundaries and, yes. you know, saying no to things that you are not comfortable with or that you don't want to do or that you're going to regret later. Obviously, this is simplified, but you're saying these kids don't they, this is not something they inherently figure out. They need guidance. They need to learn or, it, yes. Okay. Don't forget the immortal soul, even with a bodhisattva, the immortal soul is encased in a human with all that wiring. And the fact of the matter is a bodhisattva knows who they are and they have a spiritual calling when they're young. A blindfolded bodhisattva does not know who they are. So they could repeat the pattern again, in which case they will have not learned their lesson, in which case they will have to come back and learn it again. No, good question. It's like, this is where, when we understand that the soul is playing a role becomes even more evident. Um, 
it's not that they're here to learn a lesson. They elevate by, um, in other words, if I'm a younger soul, I'm striving for enlightenment, meaning I'm striving to get my PhD. These people have a PhD. It's they're playing the, when they come down and they're blindfolded, what they're doing is it would be like going from like maybe fifth grade to PhD in one lifetime. And even if they only get up to senior in high school, they elevated it. That's all they're supposed to be doing. So if they go from fifth grade to like senior high school and that's, they get stuck and, or they die, that's considered a win. So it's not that their soul is going backwards and they are in fifth grade. It's like a PhD is blindfolded and put into the role of a fifth grader. Does that make sense? I think so. Well, in other words, they, they're not here to learn um, on their soul level. They're here to teach the collective unconscious. They're adding energy. It's like going from 110 volts to 220 volts. Mm -hmm. Adds to the energy. In truth, if a Houdini kid is born, uh, and I should say why I call them Houdini kids, um, I was watching a documentary, Blindfolded Bodhisattva is quite the mouthful, and I see Houdini, and it's a documentary on magicians, and they're showing a little clip from Houdini, and he's blindfolded, and they tie him in a chain, they put him in a bag, and they throw him in the river. And I thought, oh my gosh, that's so symbolic, because you take an enlightened being who has no karma to burn off, you put them, blindfold them, tie them up, put them in the bag, and throw them down on earth into a young family. So they wake up, they look around, they feel very out of place and alienating, Mm -hmm. They are many times loners. They try so hard to fit in at first, but usually around high school, college, they begin to break away. Um, they're very attracted to cliques because a clique has a feeling of, of unified, we're, we are herd animals in our biology, and they can't find the clique. And they're what a lot of people have called universals, where they can go and talk to any clique and anybody, those are these blindfolded uh, bodhisattvas. And so their mission is just to be on earth and to awaken within. That's their mission. Ah. Nothing else is needed. So and if other people awaken as a result, great, which they <laughs> probably will. Yes. But their main purpose is to they them for themselves to awaken. It's yes, and it's upping the energy field. In other words, when you have that collective unconscious have three times the amount of forgiveness in it, it's easier for other people to tap into it. So on um, their soul growth. Gotcha. And yeah. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, many of them are healers. Many of them are, you know, doing um, selfless things. They're, they're nurses or, um, you know, they could be a cashier in a grocery store, but they're the ones that's always smiling and helping people. Mm -hmm. it's, it's in their nature. Mm -hmm. So um, they're not like going to be messiahs in any way. 
They're just here at the grassroots level to facilitate change and stop that negativity being spread. There's a lot of people, for example, that were beaten as children that are no longer using spanking as a teaching tool. Mm -hmm. So there's a shift, you know, where we're coming out of that fear-based behavior and coming more into love-based behavior. And what are indigo children, or is that a <laughs> is that a an old old lingo? That's um, something that has just started in the last um, 30-some years on Earth. Now, when I had a meditation when I was on Earth, when I had come back, I wanted to know, the way I always ask questions, I wanted to know the logistics of how does this actually work? Okay, you tell me about these bodhisattvas, these two different levels, and um, how, you know, how does this work? And what they showed me was like a light being me coming down in my light body and landing in a swamp. And the more I forgive, the more I solidify the ground. So the more I turn away from um, passive abuse or um, you know, the more I don't do the things that a lot of people, you know, heavy duty sarcasm, which is pass, which hurts. The more I don't participate in that type of behavior, even though culturally it's all around me in the TV and the radio and the books you read, um, the more I elevate the ability for this light to seep into everyone. So as I'm in the swamp, I can see that the more I come out of the swamp, I become a light being again, and the ground underneath me solidified. Beautiful little star-like flowers all over the ground. And then I turned, because I could hear laughter, and I looked, and there were these kids coming down. They were like, you know, 13, 14, 17-year-olds, but young, you know, uh, junior high, high school kids age, and they're hitting the ground running. And then that was when I had that vision. It was like in the very late 80s. I didn't know what indigo children were. But there became, within a few years after that, maybe eight or nine years, people were beginning to talk about these magical children that were so wise. And they're not affected by anything. We had to go into this darkness and find the light within. These kids are coming down, and it doesn't matter where they're born or who they're born to, they just hit the ground running, and they absolutely are the ones that are going to be um, affecting changes. I mean, you have a 12-year-old addressing the United Nations on global warming, you know. You have all these children. Or someone like, well, I don't know, Malala? Yeah. Exactly. You have all these people coming in that are these bright lights that are very, very selfless, but not to a fault. They're very clear. They have their boundaries placed in, and they just are here to change. And it's very interesting because there's a holy man in India. His name is Sri Aurobindo, 
And he had written around the year like 1905, he had written a beautiful um, paper on it was time to get the holy men and women out of the uh, temples and synagogues and churches and get them into the business world so that business could be changing um, into things that encompass rather than exclude. And then I'm reading an article on smart money, and they're talking about how cooperative businesses now make more money than competitive businesses. Mm -hmm. Cooperative and conscious, right? Yes, exactly. I mean, number one food trend in America is organic. Mm -hmm. And who jumped on board? Costco. They are single-handedly facilitating that in a big way because they're sponsoring these organic farmers to become certified because that's a costly process. And that way they will buy all their produce and you go in Costco and you see all these little green stickers now because they're going following what people, people want organic. So even though I guess what you're talking about is really the spreading of consciousness. Yes. And even though things, because I think, most people would say things feel kind of bleak right now. Like there's, it just feels like there's two really strong opposing forces. Yes. Sometimes things are separating. Yeah. And it, and it just, you know, with all these amazing kids coming in and the, the raising of consciousness, why does it also feel so simultaneously heavy? Like, climate change and you know particularly here like young kids being shot all the time and I live in Chicago and you're from here there's just so much violence and hatred um okay so a couple of things to go back again to the bodhisattva think about someone who goes in to be a spiritual leader where do they go so I'm Catholic so if I was a boy, I would go be a priest, and then I would go teach in a church. Who goes to church? People that are half awakened. If you're going again through baby playgroup as the first incarnation, PhD is enlightenment, then we've got like seventh, eighth graders, high school kids are all in their churches. The grade school kids are still in the world, unaware, unconscious agnostics. That's where we placed for over a hundred years, that's where we placed the blindfolded bodhisattvas. There was a huge influx of them between the early 40s and the early 70s because there were so many hundreds of millions of people killed and affected by the two world wars that you had this huge influx. Well, then we get to the 60s, and that is when people that were born in the 40s and 50s started saying enough is enough is enough. When the enough is enough goes more widespread, then we will have that snap where people, it's not going to be all heaven on earth, you're always going to have conflict, but we escalate with the, um, it has to be escalated in order to wake us up. I mean, people are waking up in a big time. The other thing is this. You always have to look at what's going on in the entire world. Mm -hmm. The news, especially in America, 
you know, I was in Scotland for a while, uh, a little bit back, and the news there is very different than the news here. And they can even report the same story, but it's not like a feeding frenzy of fear. Mm -hmm. um, they did a study one time where they took all these clinically depressed people off of news, and within six months, all of them were off their medication. Then they put some of and some of them went back to reading only or listening only, and a few of them slid back. But everyone that went back to watching the news went back on their medication. And that's because, why? We're wired to help. So if you and I are neighbors in, you know, old days, and you've got a barn that catches fire, the, the village helps you. We take you in, we shelter you, we restock, we rebuild. Mm -hmm. Because when we see crisis, we physically have that reaction. Right, so I'm right. I'm sitting on my television, what, I mean, sitting in my chair, talking, watching it, and everything in my body is wiring and, and putting out all the chemicals to go and help, and I'm sitting here. So we get stressed. The other thing is this. There's a, a few different places where you can go and read the news and or at least look at another um, objective opinion. That one I wrote about in my book is called The Optimist Daily. And every this guy got so tired of... I know. I've often thought of wanting to start a news station that only talks about good news. It's, it's, it, it would know, change our planet. It would change the way we view Yeah, it ab absolutely. It would change our planet. It's the most, he, he started it out as called the intelligent optimist because it's more than just a puppy saving a kitten, which are cute, but, but the people, if you could see how many people are doing all these amazing things to change the planet and do phenomenal things. Um, it's like all these different countries, like uh, Bhutan was the first country maybe eight years ago to outlaw, you know, um, GMOs and pesticides. They're, they're, everything grown in Bhutan now is organic, you know, and they're using um, herbs and bugs and all the things you can do to have um, your gardens be you know, uh, bettered and have produce and, and not give it away to all the insects and bugs. But it's amazing what the world is changing into and how pe people are helping each other. You have a little 14-year-old boy that with a copper wire and some water and some dirt figured out a way to get electricity from the magnetic field around us and he actually lights up the lamps in his mother's house. You know, I mean, you just have all these, but it's like, it's like governments and, mm -hmm. and people doing big things like Pakistan having a national referendum and making a federal law that, that nobody, you know, gender bias is illegal. It, it, what is, is you leave it alone. You can't discriminate against anyone there. And I didn't expect that out of Pakistan to be the first country to have that national freedom. To where, no, leave them alone. You know, they could do who, who the, what they want. They can be who they want. I just thought, you know, all these magical stories going on that do give you hope and show you how the world as a whole is evolving. We've got little pockets of hatred, but, you know, 
um, we just have to stay the course. Mm-hmm. And I, that's where we go into faith and we pray. They did a study one time, um, and they had, at that time, that Washington, D.C. was the murder capital of the world. Now, I guess it's Chicago, but hopefully it will pass. Yes. Um, but they We're had, trying. We're trying. Well, they had a TM group come in. It was July. And they said, we're going to meditate and pray. I think there was about 400 people. And we will affect the murder rate, the crime rate. And the chief of police got on television. And when he heard about it and said, the only thing that will stop the crime wave uh, rate here is snow in July. That will stop the crime wave. And within seven days, as evidenced by the FBI work, the ones that were doing the statistical analysis, so you know it's objective, it had dropped 25%. That's huge. Mm-hmm. You know, um, those are the kind of statistical things that it's like, it's like a little light over here, a little light over here, a little light over here, but when we plant enough lights between them all, that's where you have that collective unconscious change. Right. And that was what the mission with the blindfolded boot bodhisattvas or Houdini kids, that was their mission was to go in and start planting all these lights and, you know, go where no light was. And then another light would come near them. And then they, it begins to make everything spread grassroots in that grassroots way. Wow. Well, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. What was, can you tell me again what the name of that optimist, what was it called? The it's called The Optimist Daily. Daily. And it's online now. He it used to be called The Intelligent Optimist. Then they went online and um, they have, he just, he and his crew worked tirelessly to gather significant, amazing stories that we are progressing and doing phenomenal things for the aid of all. Mm-hmm. You know, so the world is a lot better than our news lets us think. Mm-hmm. And you're right, though, about it's polarizing. The people that are fear-based and the people that are love-based are getting, each one is getting stronger. Mm-hmm. But again, then statistically, more people are love-based. You know, they had that a couple of years ago in Charlotte. They had that big, horrible incident with the white supremacist and the girl got killed. And about two weeks later, a white supremacist neo-Nazi group was going to march in Boston. And, you know, they got permission to do the march. There was a lot of news about it. And you can still find the images from this that's all over the Internet and What happened was they're walking, marching, marching, and on either side of them are groups that are from churches that are holding banners of love. And they went to the center of this um, big park, and there was about 250 of them in the center, and there was 40,000 people around them singing songs of love, saying, we're not going this way. So if you want to look at proportionately, more people are good on the planet than not. Mm-hmm. So the evil is very potent and it's getting a lot of, you know, airtime. But in reality, it's not the majority. The majority of people 
are very decent, good people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we're coming into that. Remember those pictures of all those men with blindfolds on and they're fighting over what the elephant looks like? We have like all these guys touching an elephant. Mm. Um, I'll send you it. Okay. It, it's, um, it's like someone's touching the, they're all blindfolded and the one guy's holding the trunk. He says, it's a spear. And the one man's holding, or I mean, he's holding the tusk and he's like, it's a spear. The other one's holding the tr trunk. No, it's a snake. The other man has his hands on the sides. He goes, no, no, this is a wall. Someone has the tail. No, this is like a fly whisk. Someone's got the leg. It's a tree. If they all shared the image, they would know what they're talking about. Mm -hmm. What they're fighting and said, take off your blindfolds. You know, you're, you're blindfolded by your perception. Mm -hmm. Because my way is the only way. Mm -hmm. And when we begin to share, which is that, that whole process of the Houdini kids is to get everybody sharing and talking and respecting each other's pathways, even though it's not one I want to try. Mm -hmm. Well, it sounds like we need more of these kids coming down, helping us out here. Well, every generation, I mean, every day you've got more bodhisattvas being born, more blindfolded bodhisattvas being born, and more indigo kids. Indigo kids are just in a class of their own that can't be affected. They're good, whether they're, doesn't matter where they're born. They have a singular mission to affect big changes in business for the better. They're the co cooperative kids. Well, Leslie, thank you so much for this fascinating, another fascinating topic and interview today. And can you just let my reader, my, my readers, my listeners know where they can find you? Yes, um, they can find me. I guess the best place is my webpage because all my social uh, media is on that page. So it's Leslie, L-E-S-L-E-Y, Joan Lupo, L-U-P-O, Dot com. Great. And that will be on my um, show notes. That will be in my show notes as well. Okay. Well, thank you so much again for your time today. Thank you for inviting me. I appreciate it. Yes. Have a great day. Okay. Bye-bye all. Bye-bye. Like what you heard today and want to hear more? Curious about what comes next and what it all means? You can subscribe on iTunes. Just go to podcasts and find life death, and the space between, and hit subscribe. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Dr. Amy Robbins. Ask me any questions you might have, let me know what else you'd love to hear about, or just share your story. I can't wait to hear from you.